So basically people who are experiencing mental health problems experience psychedelics and MDMA, which of course we give honorary status as a psychedelic, they experience them very differently from people in the, in the non-clinical setting. Now that's not to say, of course, that psychedelics don't have potential to offer great benefit in the non-clinical setting. And for that reason, I personally can quite comfortably comprehend decriminalization of non-clinical drug use on the one hand, alongside legalization of clinical psychedelic use on the other. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. I am so excited to share this episode today regarding psychedelics and mental health. I have got one of the top experts in the world who has been looking at this research for the past 20 years because of the world of psychedelics now exploding in the mental health sector. I want to deliver you the honest truth and facts around the evidence today. I hope you enjoy it. It was a really exciting episode, a little bit longer than usual. And in some parts, we can get quite sciencey, but stay with it because it's so interesting. And hopefully, it helps you navigate this new imploding field that we're currently living in. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic who have turned astoundingly nutrient-dense ingredients and aptogenic herbs into delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is organic, fair trade coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chagra mushroom for immune support. Taking us to Fungay Town, I absolutely love using an alternative such as Four Sigmatic instead of coffee. It really is easy on my gut and it doesn't leave me with that awful jittery feeling or that midday crash that sometimes people can experience with coffee. All Four Sigmatic products are organic and plant-based. Plus every single batch is a third party lab tested to ensure its purity and safety. So you know you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. Now you're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? I can guarantee you it tastes just like coffee that you love. It brews dark and it's nutty and tastes delicious. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash be well. That is www.foursigmatic.com forward slash be well and fuel your mornings with some delicious mushroom coffee. Psychedelic therapy is understood to harness a therapeutic window and open up the brain with the effects of the drugs to help facilitate insight and emotional release and with psychotherapeutic support, a subsequent healthy revision of outlook and lifestyle. In America, Origin is legalizing mushrooms, ketamine can be delivered to your home, and people are microdosing doing LSD to treat pandemic-related anxiety. Today, Martin Williams joins us. He is a research fellow formerly in pharmaceutical sciences and now in psychology at Monash University. His interests in psychology and pharmacology have led him towards a multidisciplinary study of psychoactive compounds and their roles in contemporary society. 
Martin is also a co-lead on the St. Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Phase 2 trial of psilocybin-assisted therapy for depression and anxiety associated with terminal illness and co-investor on the up-and-coming Melbourne multi-institutional psilocybin trial for treatment-resistant depression at Edith Cohen University MDMA trial for PTSD. Wow, Martin, we've got a real expert with us today. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you for being here. Sarah, it's a pleasure to be with you. (laughs) So first of all, you know, there's so much that I want to unwrap, as you've seen from the questions that I've sent to you. But can you just give us kind of a short story around psychedelics? Like, What are psychedelics? How do we define them? So psychedelics have a significant history on many levels, Sarah. Of course, we understand now that psychedelics were very important in prehistoric, essentially indigenous times. So there's a deep, deep history of the use of psychedelics for cosmology, for health, for outlook, for general sort of social well-being. But fast forward, I guess, to the last century or so, and the Western world discovered psychedelics over a period of time, over about 50 years or so. It was around the turn of the 20th century, in fact, that the first psychedelics, which was mescaline, was discovered by a German chemist and pharmacologist called Dr. Arthur Hefter. And he isolated and self-experimented with mescaline from cactus. And mescaline, of course, is an example of one of the two major classes of psychedelic compounds. And I think he chose a pretty good one because mescaline is well known for its visionary capacity and also for its incredible sort of positive effect on mood. So I think he realized very early just how powerful these compounds could be. However, it did take some time for the development of psychedelics in the Western world. And we can fast forward further to the late 30s and early 40s when Basically, Dr. Albert Hoffman, who was working for Sandoz Chemicals in Basel in Switzerland, was looking for a compound which could be extracted from ergot, from a fungus which developed on grains such as rye, barley and wheat. It was found quite early that there was a whole range of compounds which could have huge physiological impacts. In other words, they could uh, stop bleeding in postpartum hemorrhage, for example. It wasn't known at that time that they could have psychotropic effects. So, in fact, it was an accidental discovery in 1943 after Albert Hoffman had originally isolated this particular compound from ergot. It was one of a series of compounds. It was called LSD number 25, simply because it was the 25th in a long series of compounds that he was isolating. That was back in 1938. It wasn't until 1943 that he had something of a premonition. Perhaps this compound might have something special about it, or so the story goes, his story goes. And so in 1943, he actually self-administered this compound. He re-synthesized it from the shelf and then discovered accidentally perhaps that it might have some sort of effect. It's a couple of days later on the 1943 that he deliberately self-experimented with this compound and discovered just how profound those effects would be. Fast forward a couple more years into the early to mid-50s and then the word psychedelic was actually created by a psychologist, a British psychologist who was working in Canada and the very eminent essayist and novelist Aldous Huxley. Through a vigorous and a lively exchange of letters, they, uh, they came up with a classic, the classic term psychedelics. So psychedelics in short, and we 
generally sort of differentiate what we call the classical psychedelics from a number of other sort of psychotropic or psychoactive compounds. The classical psychedelics act at a class of subclass of receptors of serotonin receptors, and I'll explain that in a couple of gifs. They act at the subclass of serotonin receptors called the 5-HT, which is serotonin. 2A receptors, and those receptors are localised in particular areas of the brain which seem to have a very significant sort of correlation with memory, with mood, and with sort of our sense of self perhaps, and a whole range of other sort of aspects of our what it is to be human. That really makes it a very interesting sort of tie back into the fact that psychedelics were used in prehistoric times by Indigenous people throughout the world. It's been a very interesting journey for us. And that's so fascinating to hear just how long they have been used for because they are really coming to the centre of our attention now and respected by research, we sure heavily in. But there seems to be quite a long time to it being recognised as a therapeutic approach, doesn't it? That's right. So it's very interesting that psychedelics were discovered, of course, in the modern era in the 40s, the 1940s and into the early 50s. That really coincided with a couple of really significant advances, I think, in in medicine and in biochemistry and science more generally. The first was that this coincided with an explosion in what we would call psychiatry. We recognised that there was the real sort of burgeoning of the field of psychiatry. And so there was a great deal of interest in compounds, drugs, which might have an impact on people's mood or their perspective or their perception. And this was a time, it must be acknowledged, when the human brain was not particularly well understood. I have to say parenthetically that, of course, it's still not particularly well understood. We've come a long way in the last 50 or 60, 70 years. But that sort of early phase of psychiatry, in fact, psychedelics were considered perhaps to be the next big thing or one of the next big things. This was a very dynamic and exciting period, of course. It also coincided with the development of what we now regard as receptor science, receptor physiology or receptor biochemistry and and pharmacology. And so, in fact, the whole idea that receptors were proteins which are embedded in membranes in the brain was actually a very, very new and novel concept at the time. And in fact, it was the discovery of LSD by Dr. Albert Hoffman that led indirectly to the postulation of A, the identification of serotonin as a significant neurotransmitter. And then, of course, the identification of the serotonin receptors. And then, of course, that led to the whole range of other neurotransmitter receptor discoveries that took place in the uh, in the subsequent sort of 40, 50 years. So that's really interesting because you keep referencing back to serotonin. I think for many of our listeners to define what that is, that's a happy hormone, isn't it? That's how I like to call it in layman's terms of saying that release is what releases when we feel happy. It gives us a happiness feeling, I would say. And there's also dopamine receptors as well, which also release we know when people hug each other and it's a feel good feeling. But how does these psychedelics actually interact with our brain? Like what changes is happening when we are taking psychedelics? Are the parts of our brain opening and how does it work with that serotonin release? 
So at the most fundamental level, probably the most commonly sort of used model is that of the lock and key. So serotonin is one of the natural endogenous or sort of internal neurotransmitters. It's a relatively simple compound that's related chemically to tryptophan, which is one of the amino acids, which is one of the building blocks of proteins. It is very similar chemically related to quite a number of other compounds that are floating around in our system at all times. It is not so terribly different certainly in scale and also in terms of its biosynthesis to the phenethylamine neurotransmitters such as noradrenaline or norepinephrine and dopamine so we have these sort of this little sweet little cluster of three neurotransmitters which are really fundamentally sort of involved in our moods in our human interactions in our appetite as it happens in our sleep and so all of these simply through animal evolution as it happens because of course we have to recognize it we as humans are also part of the animal kingdom fundamentally impacted by these relatively simple compounds so we tend to see that the classical psychedelic compounds are chemically quite similar to serotonin in general so Consequently, they tend to bind in fairly similar ways to the receptors which have evolved, the proteins which have evolved to accommodate those compounds. Now, one thing that we are still in the process of coming to understand is that classical psychedelics have a profoundly different impact on the receptors and the downstream sort of effects on the brain, our mood, cognition and everything compared with serotonin. So if you were to introduce a lot of serotonin into somebody's brain, and I'll say a bit more about that in just a moment, then you generally will not see the same kinds of cognitive or mood effects as you would if you introduced a lot of a classical psychedelic into the brain. Now, one of the neurochemical ways of triggering serotonin in the brain, of course, is to introduce a compound such as MDMA methylene dioxymethamphetamine, which happens to be an extremely effective binder of the serotonin transporter, which is different from the receptor. But the transporter is what is responsible for mopping up the serotonin that is created into the synaptic cleft, which is all part of this sort of process of neurotransmission. And so because MDMA is such an effective reverser of that process, it tends to turn the pump around pumps the serotonin back into that cleft and really swamps or floods the receptor system with serotonin, then anybody who's had any experience with MDMA in the past will know pretty much how that feels. And that is where you really get that sort of love drope sort of feeling. And so that in many ways is the classic serotonin response. Wow. Okay. So you've just listed a couple there, but can we talk about the different types of psychedelics? Because You've mentioned MDMA and and psilocybin as another one. Many people I'm friends with have gone and experienced ayahuasca. They have many ayahuasca ceremonies. You've also mentioned LSD. Would you be able to give us an overview of the different psychedelics? Absolutely. So if we start with serotonin, which is simply not a psychedelic, we don't have to go terribly far until we find what we regard, I guess, as the prototypic psychedelic, which is psilocybin. Psilocybin is a naturally occurring compound. It's a component in what many people would know as magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms are basically a genus plus a couple of genera of psychoactive mushrooms, which 
occur very widely throughout the world from Central America through to Europe, of course, through to the Antipodes to Australia, New Zealand, Africa, quite possibly. So there are people who are well-versed, far better versed in this than I am. But psilocybin is a simple compound that in many ways mimics, chemically mimics serotonin. Its active form, which is called psilocin rather than psilocybin, can cross the blood-brain barrier quite effectively, and it can sit very, very comfortably in that 5-HT2A as well as the 5-HT2C. So there's a number of subclasses of that serotonin receptor. Now, a very similar, chemically similar compound to psilocybin and to serotonin is called DMT, which is N-N-dimethyltryptamine. And DMT is the psychoactive component, well, it's the primary psychoactive component in ayahuasca, which you mentioned earlier as well. Now, psilocybin and ayahuasca or DMT as naturally occurring compounds because they occur very widely in the fungal and plant kingdoms, particularly in the tropics and subtropics were discovered very early by Indigenous people, First Nations people across the, generally the sort of the, the Americas as it happens. And so those compounds were utilised through various sort of ritual uses in sort of cosmological as well as medical applications. So we mentioned mushrooms, we mentioned ayahuasca. LSD is what we'd call a semi-synthetic psychedelic because, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, it's actually synthesized from purified components of a fungus which grows on grains. And it happens to be a somewhat more complex and large molecule, and it's considered by a number of people in the field to be something of what we call a dirty drug. In other words, it has a broader range of pharmacological activities at a, at a broader range of neurotransmitter receptors in the brain. And so the effects of LSD, not only longer in duration, but they tend to be a little more complex and they also involve something more perhaps of a journey for people because they can involve perhaps the activation of a broader range of receptors. But nonetheless, LSD, it is what we call an ergoline compound, which is somewhat similar to psilocybin, which is a tryptamine compound. I love the word tryptamine. It just sort of slips off the tongue very well and it actually sums trips up quite well. But yeah, so LSD is an effective compound pharmacologically because it actually manages to bind into the receptor and just like hang in there for a hell of a long time. So it's very potent. Of course, it's well known as being one of the most potent psychedelics. It's active in extremely low doses, the kinds of doses that you couldn't even fit well, well under the size of the head of a pin. So yeah, in fact, a pin prick. So it's very interesting to see how LSD works. But then, of course, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the interview, we had mescaline. Mescaline belongs to a slightly different class, chemical class of compounds called the phenethylamines. And that, interestingly enough, is slightly more closely related to dopamine. However, it still binds reasonably effectively at the serotonin receptor system. And so mescaline, although it is active in only much higher doses because it has a relatively low potency, it has a different 
phenomenological or sensory effect from the tryptamine and the ergolene psychedelics. So we're looking at sort of three broad classes of compounds. There's a whole range, a huge range of compounds which have been developed as analogues of these original sort of prototypic compounds. And there's lots more exploration to be done, I'm sure, as well. we will discuss a little later in the, in the chat. Absolutely. And we're looking here now also, and tell me if I'm wrong in this, but is ketamine sprays within this psychedelics? Because that's just become legalized in the UK and doctors are now administrating that. Is that separate or would that be in the cluster? That's right. So ketamine is now regarded as a psychedelic. I guess it's always been regarded as a psychedelic, but it belongs to a very different class of compounds. Interestingly enough, it is of similar complexity in the chemical sense to psilocybin or, or mescaline. It acts at a very different set of receptors. In fact, they are a whole different class of receptors altogether. And so there is the possibility that the receptor system at which ketamine acts, which is called the NMDA receptor, is somehow implicated in the activity of the classical psychedelics, but it's still very much a work in progress. And in fact, it's vastly oversimplifying things to say that uh, that they have similar activities at all. For example, just in very simple terms, the classical psychedelics are called agonists of the serotonin receptors. Ketamine and similar dissociative compounds are antagonists at the NMDA receptor. And in fact, these are ion channels rather than GPCRs, which are G-protein coupled receptors. So there are quite different modes of action. But as I say, we still have so much to understand. And so I could well be here in 10 years saying, in fact, we were all wrong and now we know what the story is. But I think it's still a work in progress. Yeah, the blissful root of science. (laughs) (laughs) We are always learning, aren't we? We're always learning. And always standing on the shoulders of giants. (laughs) Absolutely. It's so interesting for me to hear the really in-depth side of things. But I guess for some people, they might feel a little bit confused hearing about all the different receptors and the binders. But I guess on the overarching side of things, which is very, to try not to simplify it too much, because it is such an interesting area, is that they do work mostly with our serotonin and dopamine receptors. And does ketamine work with those two receptors too? Not directly. Not uh, directly. So that's the takeaway that we need to be aware that's of. That's the trick, yeah. And so I know that you are so heavily involved in these really interesting trials. And something that I think many people are aware of now that's coming to the light within the media is the links that these psychedelics have with our mental health. So before we kind of go into the setting and understanding, you know, how to prepare and who it might be good for and, you know, the worries of people having a bad trip, which I think is what is commonly discussed as psychedelics. How is psychedelics related different types of mental health? So we're looking at PTSD. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of research into depression and anxiety and what types of psychedelics are best linked with these different types of mental health conditions. I think we're really seeing we're in the middle of a real revolution in our understanding of sort of the psyche of psychology, the link between the neurological processes and psychological outcomes and so I have to say I'm not an expert in this field but I have a reasonable sense of how psychedelics have a part to play 
What I can say is that our increasing understanding of mental illness, particularly mood disorders such as depression, such as anxiety, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, we can probably include obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, perhaps anorexia nervosa and some eating disorders, body dysmorphia, body image disorders. There's a range of mental health conditions which nowadays seem to have a common thread of rigidified thinking. So our mental frameworks tend to become somewhat, well, rigid, I guess you could say. They, they start to lose the flexibility. We start to lose the capacity to say, hang on, maybe, maybe the way I'm thinking isn't actually quite right. Maybe that's not very good for me. Maybe the way I'm interacting with people is, is not that good. Maybe I'm ruminating or maybe I'm obsessing a little bit too much over certain things that are going on in my life. And of course, to be, to be human is to live a complex life. And of course, as, as we're going through our current sort of process that we have over the last two years, I'd say for some time before that, people seem to be beset by more and more challenges in their lives and they're less and less well equipped to to deal with them just through perhaps more isolation from the people around them maybe isolation from family maybe maybe just less time maybe more stress all all these things just sort of come into play but the common thread seems to be this sort of rigid sort of framework of thinking it does appear that activation of these serotonin receptors by the classical psychedelics enables almost a sort of a refragmentation, a sort of a reset button to be pushed to enable people to seem to be or what appear to be insurmountable problems with a fresh perspective. They can find creative new ways to, to identify their issues, to address them, creative ways to reestablish relations with people. This is a very interesting and subtle sort of reconnection, I think, between the neuropharmacology and the neurobiology of the brain and the psychology, what our brains are manifesting as in terms of our moods, our interactions with people. And so it does appear, and I won't get too esoteric here, it appears that what the psychedelics do is, well, they start to undermine our increasing tendency for our brains to sort of start to predict the world that we're experiencing and to just simply experience things fresh or anew. And so psychedelics are often sort of described as generating a childlike wonder or a fresh new look at things. And it does appear to be related to breaking down those rather rigid sort of preconceptions or those perceptions. So yeah, again, without getting too deep, because frankly, that's not quite my field and there are people who are far better qualified to speak about it than I am, um, I do get a strong sense that this could be a great way to look at things and a great way to explain how psychedelics work. And is there any specific psychedelics that work better that we're seeing with different types of mental health conditions? Because you're obviously working with psilocybin for depression and anxiety related with terminal illness, but is there any ones that work better with mental health problems like PTSD, with anxiety, with OCD, or are we still trialing and testing to see which is the best? I think we've got a long way to go, and I'm really looking forward to that exploration, not necessarily on my own behalf, but I'm really looking forward to seeing that happen around the world. One thing that I guess we have to acknowledge is that psychedelics do have a somewhat complex and somewhat difficult recent past. 
in political terms, in legal terms. And it's really only just in the last 10 to 15 years that we've turned the corner again. And it's really only the last sort of three to five years, I guess, that a much broader awareness, a global awareness, I guess I have to speak for the Western world rather than other parts of the world that perhaps still have a way to go. But nonetheless, we are embracing psychedelics, perhaps in some ways, it could be said maybe a little too, with a little too much vigour and excitement. But nonetheless, I think there appears to be a great deal of promise and I think it's appropriate to be exploring these as solutions to problems which we're coming to identify more critically for which we really feel a, a significant need given that current therapeutic approaches appear not to be particularly effective for everybody anyway. So back to your question, it does seem that certain psychedelic compounds probably do have greater utility for certain mental health conditions, but I really do feel that there's there's a long way to go before we can say that we have the best compounds or the, the best yeah, the best compounds for certain conditions. Now of course I have to stress very strongly that there's a school of thought and I'd say the dominant school of thought that psychedelics in a therapeutic sense are actually adjuncts or complements or facilitators of the psychotherapeutic process. And so we should never forget, of course, that psychotherapy is a key component of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And of course, there's an underlying theoretical framework, which is probably based on this concept of the inner healing, the inner sort of healer. And so for many people, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy could be regarded most simply as the key to the opening of our inner healing intelligence. As you can see, it's a rather dynamic and complex field. There's quite a number of different sort of conceptual frameworks. They could all be correct for all I know, but I'm looking forward to finding out. I mean, it's such an exciting area that you're in, and I know you've been in this for many, many years, and you know it's probably really exciting for you to really see it to come to the forefront of society as being taken seriously. And as we're talking about this, you, you have mentioned about it being in treatment settings, and that's what I'd really like to explore, because I'm sure as people are listening to this, some people might have used psychedelics in a recreational setting or exploring it as part of their youth. But actually, it's really interesting to talk about how different this is in a treatment program. So what does a treatment program look like? How could somebody understand what this would start to look like if they went into this? So it's very interesting to consider, of course, that non-clinical use is a big contrast. It contrasts very strongly with the therapeutic or medical or clinical use of psychedelics. We know from quite a number of qualitative interviews with participants in DMA-assisted therapy research as well as psilocybin-assisted research. So basically people who are experiencing mental health problems experience psychedelics and MDMA, which of course we give honorary status as a psychedelic, they experience them very differently from people in the, in the non-clinical setting. Now that's not to say, of course, that psychedelics don't have potential to offer great benefit in the non-clinical setting. And for that reason, I personally can quite comfortably comprehend decriminalization of non-clinical drug use on the one hand, alongside legalization of clinical psychedelic use on the other. But essentially, the therapeutic use of psychedelics will usually, if not always, involve three distinct phases. The first is the preparatory phase or preparation. And that is really very important to assist 
a patient, a client, a, a trial participant, for example, in an experience of which they have no prior experience. And so anybody who has taken a psychedelic insignificant dose for the first time will probably agree that it was it was it represented quite a shift in their worldview. It's quite a different experience for people. It can elicit very strong emotions, it can elicit very deep memories, it can can bring about very novel and unexpected thought associations and processes. And, and it can bring up, uh, as I said, extremely strong emotions for people, including fear, anxiety, shame. And so people really need to be well prepared for these. Otherwise, the secondary emotional impacts of these primary responses could be more damaging than, in fact, the therapeutic benefits. So it's very important to prepare people well. The second, and of course, it doesn't need to be said that these preparatory phases are non-drug phases. So they are, they usually involve an interaction between and a development of trust and bonding between the patient, I guess I'd call that person a patient, and the therapist or therapists. In general, we'd be talking about two therapists. And in general, along the lines of psychotherapeutic tradition, particularly transpersonal psychotherapeutic tradition, there would be a male and female therapist, co-therapist team. So that development of, I guess, an empathy, a bond between the patient and therapist is very important to prepare them for the, for the active drug experience. The second phase, of course, is the active drug experience, which generally would take place during the day. Psychedelic experiences at night can be perhaps a little more challenging and difficult than they really need to be in the therapeutic context. Normally, a drug such as psilocybin or MDMA has, has a duration of perhaps four, six, eight hours before the patient would come back to baseline. And so normally the sort of the eight hour window is regarded as that sort of ideal window. Now, it also has to be said that there's a significant research being done on development of or exploration of psychedelic compounds which have a significantly shorter duration than the six hour six hours of psilocybin or MDMA. Now, for better or worse, that research is taking place, and I think that's perhaps a conversation for another day. It will be interesting to see how those research programs evolve. Now, some people would regard a very short and sharp psychedelic experience, if it's a positive and beneficial one, as being perhaps preferable for a number of reasons, dare I say, including financial reasons, to achieve the outcomes with less less investment of emotion, time, energy, and, and money than the classical psychedelics such as suicide. But nonetheless, let's sort of uh, move on to this sort of in this psychotherapeutic process. Normally, the psychedelic experience would take place in a relatively quiet, calm, and nurturing space. So if you can visualize a, a comfortable lounge room, for example, or just a, a comfy space with muted lighting with some artwork of perhaps nature scenes on the walls, perhaps a salt lamp on the table at the side, a reclining position for the patient or participant, quite often headphones such as we're wearing at the moment with a curated sort of program of music, which is in some ways aimed to guide the experience without necessarily providing too much in the way of direction for the experience itself because the, the psychedelic experience in many ways should take its own course. 
As the experience progresses, then generally the participant or, or patient would be encouraged to talk about anything which comes to mind, to consider traumatic experiences and perhaps talk them through. And that's where we need to differentiate between perhaps psilocybin-assisted or classical psychedelic-assisted therapy for anxiety, depression, OCD and so on. Contrast this with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, whereby the MDMA is a facilitator of a number of sort of therapeutic processes which don't necessarily have that much to do with the classical psychedelics. MDMA has particular effects on the amygdala, which is the more primitive part of the brain which is responsible for fear and response to fear. And also it can dramatically increase the therapeutic bond between the patient or participant and the therapists. It can also reduce the anxiety of reliving traumatic experiences. And so fundamentally, it appears that MDMA-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder is a way of facilitating an established approach called exposure therapy for the treatment of PTSD by opening up the therapeutic window of tolerance, which reduces the tendency of the patient or participant to avoid or to try and close down the emotions that are elicited by recollection of events, traumatic events. That's really interesting. So when you're experiencing this, you might actually have a very deep connection and a very emotional connection. And I also want to talk to you about the visionary experience that people might see during these hallucinogenic trips, I would say. But before we get into kind of understanding why we might hallucinate, why we might see things more vividly, if somebody is experiencing fear or anxiety, or what I would say is kind of called in terms, say, as a bad trip, how can people navigate through that or out of it? And what essentially is the term bad trip, really? What's going on in the brain? A bad trip is certainly a very strong negative response to the psychedelic experience. It is considered to be perhaps a reflection of bad minds or a negative or inappropriate mindset. And that's where the preparation, the preparatory phase of the psychotherapeutic intervention is very important. So it appears historically that people who have bad trips for one thing, may be experiencing a very strong dose of the psychedelic, which means that they're experiencing emotions and perceptions, perspectives that they simply have never experienced before. And that's where that preparation to say, okay, well, you may see things that you've never seen before, but you should be prepared to face them and accept them and move forward rather than retreat. That's very important. Now, the third, actually, the third phase of the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is integration. So that occurs after the active drug phase, and that normally would occur the following day or within the following week, the week following the experience itself. Now, that also appears to be as important as preparation in enabling the patient or participant to make sense of experiences which they probably have never seen before, to make sense of deep memories which they mightn't have experienced for many, many years. In fact, in, in many cases, repressed memories. And so that integration is very important. A bad trip can be essentially uh, in response to 
improper or insufficient preparation, but it may be resolved by effective integration. So I don't know if people are familiar with the, the sort of what's what we regard as the three legs of the stool of the of the psychedelic experience. The first is set, which is mindset. The second is setting, which is the the physical setting in which the experience takes place, but also the broader context of the experience, including company preparation and integration and so on. And then, of course, the third is the drug. And so the drug can break down to the dose. The drug comes down to the level of the dose as well as the qualitative aspects of the drug itself. And so these three components can probably have equal significance in the quality of the psychedelic experience. If one of those three is somewhat out of kilter, then, of course, that probably increases the risk of a negative experience. And so a bad trip is something that happens from time to time, but it does certainly appear to be less commonly encountered in the therapeutic or the clinical setting than in the non-clinical or recreational setting. So, yeah, there's plenty of scope, but I think it's very important to ensure that people are in a safe space, in a nurturing space, that they feel supported. Yeah, I think that's really important. And is there any kind of physical changes in the brain that happen on a bad trip? It's quite powerful that if it isn't that, it's just physically the mindset, which seems quite extraordinary. Well, I think we can say in physical or physiological terms that the levels of blood flow do change in certain parts of the brain. And particularly, that probably correlates with the transmission of electrical impulses among certain parts. And there, of course, there are many, many parts of the brain. One thing I haven't mentioned up until now is that it does appear that the classical psychedelics have a significant effect on a network of regions, subregions of the brain that is called the default mode network. And that's probably a term that's becoming more and more familiar to people. The default mode network is a network of connectivity among rather disparate areas of the brain, some of which are responsible for memory, some of which are responsible for mood, some of which are responsible for uh, capacity to communicate. All of these things come together, but essentially the DMN, the default mode network, is regarded as being somewhat responsible or implicated in our sense of self, our sense of self-narrative. It's the, the network that is probably most active when we're just simply staring off into space, not thinking about anything in particular. So that's why it's called the default mode network. It's the thing that we default back to when we're not engaged in a particular activity or remembering a particular memory or or whatever, or communicating. So it's thought sort of within the current sort of theoretical framework that in people who are experiencing mental illness of this sort of mood disorder rigidified framework sort of sense that the default mode network is what becomes perhaps somewhat calcified or or rigidified or perhaps a little too prominent in our thinking and so we ruminate we we mull over problems and we can't really easily find a creative solution that can be a problem for a lot of people can't it is the overthinking process it really can and that can impact our sleep and it's probably no coincidence that serotonin the serotonin receptor system is involved in our sleep it's also no coincidence that there are as many if not more serotonin 
the receptors in our gut as in our brain. I know, that's 90% is made in our gut. <laughs> Serotonin has profound implications for so many aspects of our minute-to-minute, let alone daily function. And it's probably no surprise that now there's a whole emerging field of interest and research in the interaction between the gut and gut microflora and mood and brain function. When we're talking about this area of the brain and the changes in the blood flow and the activation of certain areas, one big thing, I guess, that we, when we think of psychedelics is our visionary experience. When I put a post of us doing this today, but the emoji that I chose to use was a rainbow. That's quite an explorative way of being kind of my view of how psychedelics would be experienced. Colours, light, visionary, things seem more apparent to us. Why is that? Why do we have such this kind of visionary experience? Why can we hallucinate on this drug? What's going on? It's really fascinating to consider how this all takes place. You know, probably the simplest and most facile answer is to say that somehow there are parts of our brain which are you know, tied up in all of these networks of the serotonin receptor system or the systems which are downstream of the serotonin system do have implications for visionary effects. Now, I guess I often call it eye candy, those strong and profound visual impacts, particularly of a compound such as dimethyltryptamine, DMT, psilocybin to a degree, which is chemically so similar to DMT, but DMT probably first and foremost, are yet to be understood why that happens. There are some really fascinating sort of perhaps less formal theoretical frameworks for the visionary effects. But I think there are huge implications for our understanding of the visual cortex, for example, and how that is tied into, because of course we're profoundly visual beings as humans, for those people fortunate enough to have sight, of course. So it's a big thing, and I think we still have a long way to go to understand. Now, for me, one particularly fascinating point is the deep, deep difference, experiential phenomenological difference between two psychedelic compounds so closely related as dimethyltryptamine and 5-methoxy-DMT. 5-MeO-DMT is well known to have very, very little visual impact whatsoever. In fact, it's more of a whiteout or a grey, grey sort of blur if you can see anything at all. And so that contrasts dramatically with the very strongly thematic sort of visual components of uh, DMT, strong DMT experience. Now, how can just such a tiny, tiny chemical modification such as the addition of an oxygen, a carbon and three hydrogens in one particular part of the molecule have such a strong impact on the, the visual effects of the compound. And I think we that's going to be a very interesting and enlightening sort of line of research in basic neurophysiology. So we're talking about, I guess I would say, drugs here. And another drug that we have, which is consumed daily in our society is alcohol. Um, Not that we might think of alcohol as a drug, but it is essentially a drug and it's also known as more of a depressant. So what happens when you're mixing, which I can imagine a lot of people do in the recreational setting of trying drugs, trying a psychedelic, and then obviously having it on a night out, so having it with alcohol. We're talking about this in a therapeutic setting, but what happens if you're mixing other drugs like alcohol with a psychedelic? Does it have an effect? Does it reduce it? Yes. Well, of course, remember that alcohol is a GABA receptor, similar lines to benzodiazepines, such as anxiolytics and tranquilizers, such as dizepam, tamazepam, so the, the, the well-known anxiety medications. Known as kind of the anti-anxiety 
that's what it's known as. Very much so, that's correct. And in fact, GHB, GBL, hydroxybutyrate is also a strong agonist. Those tend to be the depressant compounds. Interestingly enough, it's a little known effect of GHB that there can be some extraordinary visual effects at the sweet spot of GHB. But there's a very, very fine line between clever and stupid, unfortunately, when it comes to GHB. So, and of course, alcohol (laughs) to a significant degree. There are some fantastic tables which have been compiled on the interactions, particularly in terms of safety of interactions between classes of psychoactive compounds. And of course, alcohol, GHB and others are included in those compounds. I think it can be said quite comfortably that alcohol is not a great bedfellow with with psychedelics in general. Perhaps the only positive impact it might have is its anxiolytic effects in relatively low doses. Just reduces anxiety, reduces inhibition, perhaps could reduce some of the anxiety which can accompany the early stages of a classical psychedelic experience such as that of of psilocybin. So quite a commonly encountered effect of psilocybin at the very early, I'm saying within generally the first 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes of the psilocybin experience is a particular kind of anxiety. And so interestingly enough, there's some research that's just beginning to take place exploring ways to address or to ameliorate or to reduce that anxiety and particular interest i think is the use of virtual reality vrs to address the anxiety probably a more traditionally applied approach is to include mdma in the mix with for example psilocybin or lsd so pre-dose with mdma has been found historically to ameliorate some of that anxiety associated with the early stages of a classical psychedelic experience i'm not saying try this at home folks but yeah in fact there's formal research underway of course in switzerland in particular into the combination it's very interesting just to hear about mixing the compounds in a therapeutic setting and, and what that can alleviate such as the anxiety and fear and i can imagine for many people who are listening to this are so intrigued by this research because many times we're hearing this in recreational settings or maybe we're hearing it from a friend of their experience or I don't know you think about to the 60s and the 70s and psychedelics are kind of coming out and I guess that stopped and halted a lot of this research because it got a bad reputation but kind of coming back to it now with legalizing it and the stigmas against it as I said in the beginning, you know, Oregon and America is legalizing mushrooms. That's quite a big step. And here, even in the UK, we're, we're looking at ketamine sprays. And so it is becoming, I would say, the stigma is reducing around it. However, there is still a heavy stigma attached to it. Well, how do we kind of not normalize it in a recreational setting, but how do we have this conversation without feeling scared around psychedelics? I think there's been a very interesting strategic approach and I really have to credit the people who have pioneered this renaissance, I guess many people call it a renaissance or a surgence of interest in psychedelics through the approach of medicalization. And so my feeling is that if that medicalization hadn't taken place, then we would be more or less where we were 15, 20 years ago in terms of the general stigma, the general sort of fear and misunderstanding. Now, that's not to say there shouldn't be some perhaps 
concern or caution, certainly not fear and definitely not misunderstanding associated with psychedelics. But I do feel that this deliberate approach of medicalization has been positive strategy in bringing it back into the public discourse. The conversation is so much more interesting, dynamic, positive and accepting than it was even even 10 years ago. And of course, there are certain individuals who should be credited with their part. I don't think we can name any single one person, but there's been this really fantastic sort of this coalescence of people, of missions, of perspectives. And I think it's been really good to, good to see. The key really, I think, was to remove the fear and misunderstanding by starting to highlight the potential benefits and probably the most obvious potential benefits are medical benefits of psychedelics in terms of the treatment of mental health conditions. I like to think also of something like preventative mental health, so a bit like program maintenance of your car. You take your car to the mechanic every year or so or every 20,000 kilometres or whatever it might be so that they can prevent the wheel from falling off or the gearbox from breaking up or whatever it might be. And so if we take our minds in for tune-up from time to time, and it does appear that in certain contexts psychedelics might have a part to play in that, certainly not the only part by any means and certainly not only psychedelics, then that would potentially put us all in a much better position to maintain our mental good health and minimize our potential for mental ill health. That destigmatization has been a very strong part. Now, of course, I think we can credit the, the artists and the musicians and a whole bunch of people over the last 40, 50 years for their part to play because it's been with us all along. But we somehow seem to have had to have maintained a couple of different sort of sets of standards for the artists and the creatives along, you know, on the one hand and the rest of mainstream society and politicians on the other. <laughs> Perhaps we should sort of come together and have been embraced, but I think that process is underway. It's been very interesting to watch. Absolutely. And I think there's a really interesting question, actually, that was sent to me when I put up my post regarding our conversation today. And one of it was around the ethics to patent the research in psychedelics, because if we're looking at the pharmaceutical industry, which I know that you have been heavily involved in in the past as well, do you feel this, this can limit the accessibility for the drugs that are supposed to help lots of people as the benefit to actually profit a few of these companies? What's your thoughts around the ethical side of this? I personally am a strong proponent of, of open science, open research, and I think it really needs to come back on the one hand to the fact that so many of these compounds have deep, deep human or history of human use. So we've been interacting with these compounds on a deep level for millennia, quite possibly. And so sadly, it is the reality that we're living in in a, in a somewhat commercial world and perhaps it well, it definitely needs to be acknowledged that the medicalization of psychedelics has perhaps had some consequences that were, if not totally unforeseen, then certainly maybe not fully anticipated by the people who were supporting or promoting that medicalization in the early stages. It is a reality that nowadays we're living in a 
in the Western world anyway, in a very strongly commercial world. In fact, pretty much globally, of course, it's, it, it almost goes without saying. So we can have our own personal feelings about this. Some people would be strongly supportive. A lot of people would be, and particularly people who've, who've had experience and knowledge and awareness and support of psychedelics over a longer period of time, are deeply dismayed by, by some of the more recent developments. As a researcher and as an advocate for psychedelics over the last 10, 15 years, it's hard for me not to have a foot in both camps, frankly. I mean, I have to, you know, admit to feeling you know, somewhat compromised on the one hand and also just concerned, you know, just simply concerned on the other. It's disappointing and, and disquieting to see how things are going. I do hope that we can find the way forward. And I guess on a personal level, I would hope that, as I mentioned before, decriminalisation on the one hand might accompany legalisation and medicalisation on the other. So what do you think's next for psychedelics? Where do you see us going? Do you see it being legalised in most of the Western world? Do you see us going all to have forms of therapy with psychedelics? I think that's really interesting because people listening to this podcast might think, well, this sounds an amazing treatment program, but I wouldn't even know where I could access that. You know, what do you think's next for the world of psychedelics and, and mental health? Well, my feeling is that research is really crucially important before and the accumulation of appropriate amounts of good quality, positive, supportive research data will be very important before the broad-scale implementation and certainly commercialization of psychedelic-assisted therapies. So there are certainly some people right now who are advocating very strongly on the basis of limited, frankly, limited evidence by the standards of medical research at this particular point for the widespread implementation of psychedelic-assisted therapies. My concern is that evangelism of any kind potentially could cause us significant setbacks. We're quite worried about what we're calling at the moment the leery moment, this sort of overexcitement, this overexuberance. And it feels a little strange for me having been an advocate in Australia for the last 10 to 15 years of working towards psychedelic treatments through research, suddenly to be saying, hang on, <laughs> we should probably be a little circumspect, you know, we should be careful before we embrace things fully because although they may work for some people, they probably won't work for everybody. We have a long way to go in terms of exploring the wide range of psychedelics and perhaps for tailoring individual psychedelics to individual people. And so although broadly we can say that psychedelics are safe medically, physiologically, so they tend not to have carry great risks in terms of impacts on people's physical health unless they're used inappropriately in, in the wrong contexts or overused. And, of course, there's the risk of overuse, as just about anything in the medical field can be overused. There's certainly a great risk of inappropriate use and outcomes in the mental health sphere. So some people personally have seen some people who have not responded well to psychedelic experiences, and I think it's very important to ensure that Although a significant majority of people who experience psychedelics might come out better for the experience, there's still the risk that some people may come off worse. We really need to keep researching to ensure that we can minimise those negative impacts.
And so it's a really good question to finish on, really. How do you know if you are a good candidate for psychedelics? How can we differentiate who would be best suited to psychedelic treatment and who wouldn't? I think we have a little way to go before we can really start to determine the mental health profile, I guess, of people who may be less well suited to a psychedelic experience. It's hard to say at this stage, for example, whether people who have personality disorders may be well served by psychedelics or whether in some cases they might exacerbate their conditions. People who unfortunately have schizophrenia, a family history of schizophrenia, who have incipient or emergent psychosis probably shouldn't be administered or taking psychedelics themselves because there is a demonstrable risk of exacerbation of those conditions. So I do think we need to continue that research, that exploration. I think we need to be careful not to get too excited about things and we need to really allow the established processes to take their course. The processes of drug development and research and approval are there for a reason. And to try and circumvent or circumnavigate those processes is potentially risky. And I guess that's when it can be taken into the wrong hands. And so actually listening to the evidence and where we are and speaking to the right people, and that is really important because there are many experiences currently today where people can go and experience this. And I guess it's making sure that it's done correctly and with the right people. Exactly right. And I've been saying on occasion that there's never been a more exciting time to be involved in psychedelics and exploring psychedelic medicine. I hope this research continues. Certainly there's a huge amount of interest in the investment community in this, and that's been led by certain key opinion leaders and influencers globally. It's not really for me to say. I have no way of predicting how things are going to turn out, although my crystal ball suggests that quite a number of people might be burned by it. And that I think like any gold rush or any real rush to invest in, for too many people to invest in a certain untested field, really amounts to speculation. I think maybe an element of caution and level-headedness might be, cool-headedness might be appropriate. But that's not for me to say to anybody, of course, but that's just my own perspective at the moment. I like to see the great degree of collaboration and collegiality in the research community generally with some notable exceptions. I think this sense of common purpose and collaboration will see us through to the best outcome. And so I would hope and encourage people who are working in the research and the commercial space to collaborate and to keep their eye on what we're all here for after all, which is, I would say, not short-term gain, but, but really long-term positive outcomes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so this finishes on my final question that I always like to ask all my guests. It doesn't have to necessarily answer in the psychedelic realm, just so you know. But Martin, what does live well, be well mean to you? I was thinking about not this particular question, but it is very, very appropriate. I think in this particular moment in human history, we are experiencing deep disequilibrium. And so I think our sense of balance and equilibrium is really paramount. If we can re-establish our global balance, we can really only achieve that through our individual personal balance. I think that would be the greatest step forward. I sense that psychedelics actually could assist people 
to reestablish their balance by remembering <laughs> who they are, why they're here, who they're with, where we're going. And it is interesting that it seems that time and again, the visionary aspects of the psychedelic experience are really what stay with people. The visionary aspects do appear to certainly regarded by some researchers, not all researchers, it has to be seen, but some researchers to be crucial for positive therapeutic outcomes. My sense is that they're certainly important, if not crucial. And I certainly hope that people who do have the good fortune to experience positive psychological experience will also achieve that degree of balance and that positive perspective which accrues. I think that's fantastic. For anyone who wants to know more about this subject from reliable resources or also wants to keep up to date with the trials that you're on and the research that's developing, what information can you give everyone? Well, I have the very good fortune to work with some wonderful people in our, in our organization. It's a charity called PRISM, acronym for Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine. We have a wonderful website which provides all sorts of resources and keeps people abreast of the research that we're engaged in and we're supporting. There are six of us who are the core director team at the moment and we all have a range of interests from research to harm minimization to further development in perhaps the commercial space as well. So there's some really interesting stuff going on as well as a deep connection with plants and with ethnobotany with, with so on. So prism.org.au is our website and I would certainly encourage people to visit that and support us if at all possible because integrity and authenticity are really our absolute sort of key words for what we do at Prism and I hope people will be happy to get on the journey with us. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to link that into the show notes. We can head there and go and find the website and look at all the fantastic and interesting research that you're working on and have been working on for a while. So thank you so much for sharing so much insight into the world of psychedelics. I hope that laid out some facts for many people and the status quo of really where we are today, like where are we in this field currently? So it really opened my mind mind the pun but it really did <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on to live well be well Sarah it's been a lot of fun going to chat with you thanks very much for your time Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well and Be Well. I hope you enjoyed that and found it interesting as much as I did. If you really did enjoy that episode, though, please do leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. It means so much to hear from you guys and also helps spread the importance of these factual conversations that we host. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.